Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, you're going to like this conversation. Katrina Barry is Deloitte Tech's Fast 50 female leadership winner for 2022 and CEO of the globally ambitious Australian restaurant and pubs ordering app, Me and You, backed by a Hollywood-style list of Australian names, including Miravale's Justin Hems, Rockpool's Neil Perry, Uber Australia co-founder Mike Abbott, and former Google ANZ and current domain boss, Jason Pellegrino. Katrina, if you don't know, has a CV that screams ridiculous talent. She's a Kiwi, so of course it makes sense. Katrina cut her teeth at McKinsey early in her career before eventually joining Richard Branson's Virgin Group, setting up Virgin Active and Virgin Money, and then a stint at BT Financial Services, her last serious blue-chip corporate gig if she has anything to do with it. Katrina then pulled off a big one, a blisteringly successful transformation of Kentucky and Trafalgar tours. And if anyone's done a Kentucky tour in their more sprightly youthful phase, renowned for booze, bongs and bonking tours across Europe, Katrina's complete re-engineering of that consumer business is fascinating. I haven't done a Kentucky tour for the record. We'll get to a bit of that shortly, but of course, she's about a year into the role as CEO of Me and You, founded by Stephen Pramutico, who also started the Dimmy Restaurant Reservation Platform, backed by Telstra and Village Roadshow. That was sold to TripAdvisor in 2015 for an estimated $25 million. Now, Me and You is outrageously ambitious. It already controls about 70% of large format hospitality venues in Australia and is now going global. There are 60 competitors, for instance, in the UK, but Katrina says the emerging category will ultimately consolidate down to three or four global players, and Me and You will be one of them. She's chasing at least 20 billion, I think, in on-site food and drink orders globally, and last year landed a Series C funding round to help crack the giant US market, among others. It sounds a bit crazy, but Katrina argues the little me and you device on bar and food tables is actually about business transformation, customer experience, and for the venues, more business. Actually, up to 30% more based on me and you's aggregated data that shows if patrons don't have to wait for a Negroni or a kale-infused pheasant at the counter or for a host, they order more. Hence, many venues are now creating dark bars as one tactic to improve customer experience and sales. It's a great tale, and we're about to find out why a little bit of tech in a pub or restaurant is transforming the economics and hospitality and customer happiness. So welcome. With that big, long spiel, Katrina Barry, welcome. Looking forward to this conversation. Let's start with this number that I've pulled out, which is essentially you're chasing $20 billion market globally, actually. I know I've made that figure up off some pretty fast calculations, but we, we are talking billions and billions. What's going on with this little device that's got so much upside and is upending how venues actually design around improving the customer experience? And it's a year in, so you've got some perspective now, Katrina. Yeah, I think I nearly know what I'm talking about. <laughs> nearly. <laughs> Look, yeah, well, it is billions and billions. You just took a couple X's off there, mate. It's $250 billion market globally for what we call order-in or sit-in venues. So the table ordering venues where somebody will order off that. So that's the total addressable market that we're, we're hitting up. And 200 billion. 250 billion market globally. Wow. And to be honest, actually... Uh, that's only calculated on the three markets that we have considered as our addressable market right now, being the UK, Australia, and the US. 
So it's much, much more beyond that. But yes, this little table device, well, we call them Billy the Beacon because Billy takes care of the bill. Aye, nice. (laughs) As we go into the US, everyone's calling them pucks now, as in the hockey puck. Ah, yes, right, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, there's a lesson one year in when you're going global, you've got to tailor to the market. Right. (laughs) So Billy the Beacon, yeah, we call it, I think people think this industry is cost-saving and it's um, a labour-saving device that came out of COVID. And that may have been the case in some markets around the world, but in Australia, you know, we started, me and you, four years ago. And our founder is just a, he's a hospo guy through and through and just obsessed with tech. He's also super speedy, uh, hates inefficiency. And um, so he just hated waiting for a beer. And he also hated the fact that he went to the same Italian restaurant every Saturday night and each time he got a dirty paper menu that, uh, and they they knew who he was, but because he was such a regular, but every time he had to choose. So, you know, if you can sit on your couch and Netflix curates for you all the content that you love, or I can get out of an Uber and not have to pay, I just have to walk away, that's efficiency. So if it can be happening in those industries, why isn't it happening in hospitality? which we think is one of the last pillars of a broader retail sector that's failed to really grab onto an e-commerce trend or the what I would call the new world levers of data and digital and tech. So that is simple little um, perspex beacon on a table. We call it a, tra- it's a business transformation tool. The last pillar, you know, this is a really interesting point, right? Because it's been, in particular if we talk about the COVID phase, so much retail fast-tracked their business and customer transformation and their models to e-com, as you point out. So what has been the problem with the hospitality sector? Why has it been so slow to do something in and around this area and transformation? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because I think hospitality has always said, this is a people business. You know, I want to chat to the barman or, you know, it's all about the interaction with a waiter. And I think tech is really challenging that because I think during COVID, I mean, yeah, it was super fun to do a pub quiz on Zoom on a Friday night for one week. (laughs) And then we all got bored of that. And when I went out, I didn't want to talk to the waiter or the or the server, what I want to do is talk to my mates that I haven't seen for forever. So and with this just increasing, you know, convenience at your thumb, you know, why would you go and queue to get a beer? you can get your beer delivered to you and actually spend more quality time with uh, with your family and friends that you're there to meet. I always say, um, if you can't see the bar or you need to queue, you need me and you. And that's because I think technology is transforming what going out and hospitality is really about. And it's about connecting with your family and friends who you've gone there to meet, not spending 20 minutes waiting for a, waiting for a beer. So, you know, obviously hospitality had got technical with, um, you know, point of sale systems and, you know, eradicating cash, et cetera. And this is the last part, I think, of their real movement to using data and tech to improve not only the customer experience, but also their own unit economics. Yeah. And so let's get to some of that really. There's some really interesting stuff that's going on as a result of that, the puck or Billy. By the way, my son's called Billy, so I'm going to tell him about paying the bills. I'm, I really like that one. Thank you. But this is genuinely, when you first said, you know, in our earlier conversation that this is business transformation, I went, well, here, go, here we go. Here's a big rhetorically talking CEO. But when you actually drill down, there's some serious stuff going on and how venues are changing their business back end, front end, and what's going on with the customer experience. 
that it is quite radical. It's a very big step change. So just talk us through some of those those points, Katrina, around what venues are doing based on the data and the analytics and the view they're getting from me and you. Yeah, sure. So what we typically see in any venue as the headline is a 30% uplift in revenue from any order that goes through our menu. Now, there's two factors to that. The first one is, you know, if you're having your um, Friday night rosé, you're more likely to order another second round of that if you're going to still press it with one button. Okay. So we typically see a, a cut, a repeat order basis for an individual customer double what uh, you would normally experience. One, because you're spending all your time putting your hand up, waiting for a waiter to come to you. So that's the first part. The next part is this is fundamentally a piece of e-commerce real estate, your phone. And so I can put a featured product up the top that is the product that I want to sell that has a higher margin as a restaurant. Or I can also use the smarts and the data to know two things, what someone like you is likely to order so we call it quick sell. So if you're going to order the schnitty, you're probably going to have this beer. So I can suggest that as a beer for you. So other people, you know, chose this. So standard e-tail, you know, tips and tricks that have been well learned on e-commerce and shopping platforms over the last years now applying in the hospitality. So I can upsell you an extra chips or I can set the preset for your for your beer to a large, what is it, a potty, a pot, a pint, pint, I never know. Yeah. I never know. You Let's drink just go wine, back to my you? home. Let's go yes. back to rosé. Yes. So you can set the wine glass. If I walk up to a bar and ask for a rosé, they're going to give me the house rosé in a small glass. So what we've learned from all the, the data and the analysis that we've done is if you put that preset to a large glass of rosé, 80% of people will just choose that and carry on. I could put that preset to the small glass, but you're just leaving money on the table. So we've started to use all this data and the analysis to learn about price elasticity for, for venues, about what goes with what, and to make the customer experience, A, for them easier, more seamless, like absolutely just one click, give me my schnitty and my rosé. And for venues, they now know that if I put a fever tree on there, if I put it on at 50 cents, then people are more likely to choose that one over a Schweppes tonic. However, if I put it at a dollar, they're going to choose the Schweppes. So we're really starting to learn and get smart on the data with the venues to help them optimize not only the speed for the customer, so it's a great customer experience, the personalization for the customer, so that I, if I'm a rosé drinker, all the best rosés get presented to me. But secondly, you know, um, we're all in for-profit businesses to make more margin on that average ticket. It's really interesting. So... I know, so in the Australian market, you, you know, as we said at the top, you've got 70% of large format venues. What percentage of their customers are using me and you, the me and you Billy to order? And, and is that growing? Because obviously I've looked at those pucks and billies for a long time and I personally haven't used it until recently because it was just, okay, mm -hmm. but now that I've done it, I get it. But what percentage of people are in venues are using the app? Yeah, it's really interesting because it is a, it's one of those things, right? You're like, you're either an early adopter or a laggard. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to put you in the laggard section. On the lago, lago. <laughs> so it really depends on two factors. What is the consumer, their comfort with tech? And obviously, we've all seen that soar in the last few years. If my 72-year-old mum now knows how to use her phone to pull up a QR code, well, you know, there's no stopping the world. No, this is the right. woman who I had to teach for 10 minutes how to double-click a mouse. 
Okay, that was Yikes. not so She's many years fast, ago. She's learning fast, though. <laughs> so there's two factors. One, how adept is the consumers with technology and how open to adoption are they? And the second thing is how do the venues promote it? So across our partners, you might have one venue that has 80% of their orders going through me and you. And another, the average is around about 25%. But we've seen that slowly creeping up as this just becomes the way that we order and pay. And, you know, I think there's two parts. There's one, obviously, I'm here with my team to drive growth in this category. But I think this is just going to become the way that we do things. I mean, when was the last time you walked around with a wallet, Paul? Well, that's fair. I'm, I'm not a lago on that front. I haven't been doing that for a while, Katrina. So I'm with you on yeah. that. It's a good point. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't even remember the last time I had a wallet because it's all on my phone, every single card, including my Medicare and my, you know, health cards, etc. So, and that's just the way that we do now. It's just the way that we pay. So I believe that this is the way that we will eventually just all self-service a little bit. So the, the second part to that that I said is how the venue pushes it. Yes, so yes. The difference between 80% of users using me and you versus 25%, which is pretty much our average, is the venue and how they approach it. So this is what we call the sequence of service. So the traditional sequence of service is you turn up at a bar or a restaurant. Um, depending on the nature of the, of the bar, you just kind of, you know, you go up to the bar, you get your drink, and then you find your table. The best operators, those who are really embracing technology and those who aren't just increasing their revenue by 30% are those who are doubling it and more, is uh, they introduce a host who says, hi, welcome to XYZ. Just take a seat at your table, tap on the beacon there, order your food and drink, and we'll bring it straight to you. So they kind of point the way to menu and they don't have people roaming. So humans, we're pretty good adapters on the whole. If no one's roaming, if no one's coming to see you and this little flat lay or little beacon on the table says, tap here to order your beer, you'll figure it out if you're really thirsty. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> so, and then what venues are doing is creating these things called dark bars. So what they do is strategically put bars throughout their venue and this is why we specialize in large format venues. I'll come back to that. They put dark bars across their venue where they know that if you order through me and you, we've developed the tech that splits your orders and sends the pizza to the kitchen and sends your beer to that really close dark bar so you can get your beer to you in three minutes. Now, that's a great customer experience. So venues are starting to change their operational way that they deliver and how they service to the customers. And that's the reason why we specialize in large format venues. Why? Because if I can touch the bar or I can see the barista or I can see the person behind the bar, then I genuinely think long-term there's not a, a use case for this. As I said, this is about convenience. If I can't see the bar, I have to queue. It's a really good use case for me and you. And I personally believe in fundamentals, like, you know, find the problem, solve the problem. You can't just use it as a gimmick. You have to actually be solving a consumer problem, which is how do I get my food and drink faster? And a venue problem, which is how do I service my large patio efficiently and ensure great customer experience. But at the same time, in a really tough market, i.e. the last few years, and an upcoming recessionary market, how do I make sure that I'm getting the best return on investment that I've spent to get these customers to my venue. I better make sure I'm taking $35, not $30, because we know that it's, you know, the market's tight. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a paradox though, isn't it? Because on one hand, you are 
probably helping some of these venues get far more sophisticated with their customer experience, their data, and actually got a visibility they probably wouldn't be able to do on their own building something like this. So there's that upside. But on the flip side, why wouldn't a venue do what you just said to go to 80%? If you can increase your revenue by up to 80% by pushing me and you, why aren't they? I think hospitality has, you know, the biggest sort of objection we have is like, oh, no, my customers really want to talk to me. Right. And I agree if you're going to Rockpool, you want to talk to the sommelier, you want to have a white glove experience. But if I'm at a Maryvale pub with my mates, you know, unless I'm 22 and trying to pick up. <laughs> yes. Which they don't you know. do it. I don't think they do that anymore in real life, isn't no, it? No, they it don't. They do it on Tinder. Oh, you know, right. we all used to go to bars to meet people. No one goes to a bar to meet anybody now. They self-select all their criteria on Tinder. That's so it. the bar has changed. It's actually about having a good time and getting as many Aperol spritz as you can. <laughs> no, not, not being a queue five deep, right? That's the whole, I mean, that, that turns me off big time as those big queues, as you say. So there's a functional a functional thing there. But they're still, it's that it's they feel like they're sticking to an old world direct service, real person sort of model. Absolutely. And I think there's been a general resistance in the industry to move away from that. But I think it really depends on the venue type and what the customers are there to do and how, you know, society is evolving. So when you're at a venue, you want to catch up with your mates, you don't want to queue. And guess what? You do not care about having a chat about your schnitty or your chips. (laughs) You know, know, the biggest thing that we order, our number one order is the schnitty. Right. That's the schnitzel for anyone yeah, who doesn't, the chicken schnitzel or the veal schnitzel. Very well put. For um, non- Schnitty's uh, the king of the king of the heap. Yeah, that's right. Schnitty and beer, chips, and the margarita pizza. That all makes sense, actually. So in terms of, do you have, can you quantify the, the improvement that the venues that are doing this are seeing in customer experience, whether it be in NPS scores or customer satisfaction? Can you quantify this of what happens on the consumer side, the customer side? Absolutely. And obviously, we have built in um, to our platform customer feedback loops. So we have like a 97% positive rating. Now, it's a bit of a gray line. Are they saying it's 97% because that was an excellent schnitty? Or is it, hey, it was 97% because my beer got here in three minutes? But really advanced thinking operators, you know, we have one of our groups, Howdsmith Wharves, who are very open that they feel like me and you. Uh, We've worked with them on design of their entire bar. They have a 3,000-seater, you know, biggest bar in the the world, actually, up in Brisbane. And they are very confident in saying that they feel like they doubled the value of their business because they put in a whole bunch of dark bars. They utilized all the advanced features that we have developed, including order throttling, order holding, split printing, all these things I'd never heard of till a year ago, but make your operation super efficient and allows you to deliver your beer in three minutes. And that's Howdsworth Wars, you know, claim to fame. We deliver your beer in three minutes. So we could get a bit early here into it, but I'm just fascinated now by how you built your tech stack, your analytics to deliver all this to your customers. Was the me and you uh, original model, has it changed radically since 2019 when it launched? You've added, I'm assuming you've added a whole bunch of stuff as you've learnt some things, but what's the tech stack that drives all this? Is it all in-house engineering? Are you just building off the shelf, pulling in off-the-shelf modules from various providers? And I know we'll talk a little bit later, you were speaking at um, Salesforce, the big Salesforce conference last week on some things there, tech stack. So what does it look like? It's all been internally built. 
Right. And we have a sort of team of engineers all based here in Australia, typically in Sydney, um, who work together to build to build the stack. So we are starting to now to partner with other pieces as we build out our customer, I guess, lens to really help our venues understand their customers more. Um, but we have to integrate with like over 70 point of sale systems across the world. Um, so that's the, that's the key point that you tap into to help a venue bring it all together seamlessly and have one, I guess, technology front. But yeah, we build it all ourselves internally and haven't outsourced anything really. So has it changed though? Yes, we were originally an app. Now we're obviously a progressive web application. So yeah, we, and we made, we made that decision during COVID to change to be progressive so that people didn't have to download. I constantly removing those friction points. So it's a great point for those of us that are unsophisticated and bordering on Luddite tendencies, a progressive web app means what? means I don't have to download an app onto my phone. I can just tap onto the beacon and go straight away. So it almost goes to like a okay. simplest way I could describe it. It goes to a website and you order off that, but it's obviously on your phone Got it. rather than having to go download to the Apple Store and download the app and then putting your credentials. So, Isn't it amazing though that everyone's talked about it, so we won't give any time, but the, the Lazarus moment for QR codes is fascinating, isn't it? Like it's really COVID sort of brought it all. It was de- I mean, essentially everyone was, was marginalised. And it's it was back. dead in the water. I remember in 2014, no, it was a 20, no, 2011, they were all, I put a QR code on the bottom of my signature because they had just come, I don't know if they'd just come out, but they were like having a moment and everyone was trying to push the QR code. And I just remember everyone was like, nah. <laughs> and right. there you go, took COVID to bring the baby back. Extraordinary, that one. Hey, so the tech stack thing's interesting in that. So you're, you know, all those learnings that come from, I guess, syndicated software platforms and e-com and how you nudge and move people through a journey and so forth. You're clearly hiring engineers and, and UX designers that understand that, but are you not reinventing the wheel by having to build it all internally and understand how behavior works, how customer behavior works? Well, we use a lot of insight from, I guess, typical e-tailing and e-commerce kind of people and best practice, but there was nothing that really existed like this right. that we could have taken off the shelf and plugged in. In terms of partnerships, et cetera, we're starting to do that now as we build out our ecosystem. So, for example, you know, we have 72 systems that we use, 72 software things that we you know, use because everyone's paying for a, a Slack, a uh, Salesforce, a Fluent, where you know, there's lots of different pieces of tech that we plug in to ensure that we're delivering a real value for our venues, but driving the smarts. Because right now, this company is a menu management company. You know, we help venues make more money by being smarter. Long term, though, I think this business is going to be a data insights business because the level of information that we capture to help venues get smarter about their customers and what they provide, I think that's where this is going because hospitality often hasn't had a lot of insight from their customers other than the verbal feedback that they get in in venue. And it's, and it's certainly not a industry that has fully embraced quantitative analytics, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, you know, and, and we're really learning and starting to bring value to our customers. So, for example, you know, the biggest cocktail last summer in the UK was the porn star Martini. What's in that? 
passion fruit martini. That's all it is. Right. But it's delicious. Don't you worry. It is delicious. <laughs> um, I'm going to try. And, you know, that was super big, according to my friends at Maryvale. That was super big like 10 years ago. Right. But I can guarantee you next summer, what is going to be the biggest one here? The porn star martini. Got it. Right. Because everything goes in cycles, right? So you want to get ahead of that. You know, right now, premiumization, okay? Yes, I believe we're about to go into a recessionary environment. However, thank you, ScoMo, because everyone had massive savings throughout COVID, which they are now spending. And hospitality is absolutely booming right now for two reasons. One, people are appreciating getting out and connecting. But secondarily, people appreciate the finer things when they're doing it. So, for example, I know that in terms of gins, people are buying up same as vodkas. Premiumization of the drink purchase and the food purchase that you make is absolutely happening across this industry. So for example, if the most common thing was a standard beer or a house glass of wine, cocktails. It is all about cocktails right now. And people are spending big money on that. And as I said before, we know the analytics now and the price elasticity and the preferences of how you rank your vodkas. Which one do you have the highest margin on and what is most popular right now? So that insight is what I think is going to become valuable to this industry in the future when customers are are going to be put under pressure. So just on that, it's a really, really great point, but is it then up to the venue? So how do you see me and you playing into that tier of, of options that a customer in a venue may see? For instance, will it be automated or does the venue need to manually change, to your point, vodkas that are hot and most best margin? Do the machines automatically order that that sequencing or does it still require um, hands-on management? Currently, it still requires the venue to work with our account managers to set up their menu. We provide the insight. We have, you know, through Tableau, we do a lot of data analysis. Every company has a data pack that's sent every Monday and there's different, um, obviously, data options you can choose within that. And we've just, you know, we have all these beautiful dashboards which they can all look at and get really good insight to their numbers. On their business, right. Yeah, but what we, you know, our account managers are pretty hands-on with our customers so they'll go and say, hey, I think you guys are missing a trick here. We think you should change your, your menu. But right now that is done manually um, through the system. You will change your ordering of your vodkas or your presets of, you do you set it to large chips or small chips? That is all done manually through the system. But I think our vision long-term is that that's all automated and you know machine learning does it for you. So, but that's, I think that one's probably a couple of years off. That's coming, that's <laughs> coming. Yeah, yeah, okay. Getting ahead of myself. I'm really interested in this, this notion you talked about, and we will get to the US expansion and and a whole bunch of other things and your global ambitions for, um, or your ambitions for global domination, Katrina. But the interesting thing around this, uh, about me and you becoming a data insights business, why is that a better business to be in? Is it uh, than just simply driving sales and venues where you get, you clip the ticket, right? As a scaled business, when you talk about 200 billion, one and a half percent, which I think is your clip, is a substantial amount of uh, volume coming through as revenue for you. So why is it better to be a data insights business than it is, you know, a, a gateway for faster, better customer experience and ordering? I think you start with the faster, better experience for venues and customers alike, but where how that gets better personalization and a better customer experience and how you drive revenue more as a venue, you have to use the data and the insights. So I think that is where the power will be because 
data is useless unless you know what you're going to do with it. You know, you can have as much data as you as you like, but unless you are understanding the insight and pulling out the actions off that, then it's a complete waste of time. So I think we will continue to evolve our, our various different products. And we've got we've got sort of three products now, if you will. Um, there's a standard order and pay. Then we've launched sort of group tabs or event tabs for corporates and for large groups. We've got just pay only, which is built for premium venues where you want to have the interaction with the server, the Amelia, very premium venues like a rock pool or a sake. Right. And then at the end of the day, I don't want to wait for my bill or anything. So the bill is delivered with a QR code on it and you can pay and split. So that's our sort of third product. So we've got little got variants it. coming out. But all of that together gives real rich data to venues, which is useless unless you're pulling out the inside of that and pulling the actions out of that. And why I think that's going to become part of the ecosystem is because, well, how does AI and algorithms drive personalization for the venue? When I walk into a venue in years to come, it should know, hey, Katrina, you and the kids are here. Do you want the same as what you got last time? One click, boom. Thank you very much. And that is absolutely what I want when I take my kids to a restaurant. So you're not necessarily talking about shifting the business to monetize data and insights in its own right. You're just talking about that being the engine for what the business is today and your venue partners. Is, is that right? Oh, Paul, I'm the CEO. I'm thinking about how to monetize everything, darling. <laughs> so you, can, you think you can monetize data and insights separately to the actual venue gateway, if you like, the billy? I can't monetize the data because that's obviously jointly held by ours, us and our venues. But what I can monetize is the insight. Right. And how would you do that? You're not going to tell me, are you? No, of course no. not. <laughs> okay. i got to wait, wait a couple of years on that. Yeah. Right. I better oh, come no, back. not that's that really long, Paul. Not that oh, long, darling. Oh, okay. Right <laughs> on. So let's get to, there's so much to cover yet. We've got to get to, you know, the US market or the UK and US markets. You said earlier in our conversation that, the UK in COVID had something like 60 startups in, in your area kick in because it was a government mandate of contactless. The US is a bit different. But so what are the ambitions there and, and competitive challenges and competitive plays? How do you see all that washing out? You think you're going to be the, the last three or four standing globally, I think? Or did I make that up? Yeah, I, mean, I really genuinely... So the UK, as you mentioned, they had a legislative change where you had to have contactless ordering if you once you opened after COVID. So every man and his dog made one of these ordering apps in, in their garage and, and sold it. What they failed to do was deliver deep, rich tech that actually helped solve the problem. They didn't have 24-7 servicing and terrible UX. So you know, one of our strengths is we have 24-7 servicing, you know, in-country and, you know, a beautiful UX. And we've spent so much money and time on making the operator tools really easy and intuitive. So, yeah, there was a plethora of competitors. They're all starting to fall away now. Right. You know, it's funny when uh, growth at all costs turns into, oh, everybody needs a little bit of cost on, uh, focus on cost and profitability, you know, when tech fouls crash. Mm. Back to the good old days, I say, where fundamental uh, unit economics actually counts. So they're all starting to fall away now in the UK and we're winning accounts that we lost a year ago because we were an Aussie company right. to a UK company. Now they're coming back and going, ah, I now see why I want the the better stack. It's like, you know, you don't buy the home brand Tim Tang, you buy the proper Tim Tang because it is so much better. So we're starting to 
you know, win more there. I think there'll be consolidation in the market given capital markets are a bloodbath right now. And yeah, I fancy MEU as being one of the the uh, teams on the dais. And uh, Paul, I just really like gold. It goes better with my skin tone. <laughs> Funny. White gold. No. So your competitive set, are they delivering a similar stack, similar offer, similar service? The ones that you think will will remain and be give you a nudge, is it different? How differentiated are you versus your competitive set? There's about two or three other players who do what we do and across here in probably the US uh, and one one or two in the UK. So in each market, there's one or two players who do what we do. Our differentiation is our focus on large format venues right? who are what we call wet lead, i.e. drink lead. Um, so that's where more than 50% of their TTV is in drinks. Okay. So we've developed a series of tech for that market that is superior to our competitors. So we've doubled down on the the order throttling, the order holding, the split printing, the all the things that you need if you're producing and, and helping a venue deliver thousands of drinks in an evening. So that's our differentiation. We're not interested in the corner cafe or the small restaurant where there's only, you know, 10 tables. I generally don't think the use case will exist there long term because it's so small. You know, we're interested in the ones where, you know, you'd have to walk quite a way to, to stand in the queue. Right, got it. And you're going to the UK and you've got the US going as well. Yes. Are you in Texas? Where have you started? At Texas, yes, the Lone Star State. Mm. Yeah, we chose Texas as our sort of kickoff there because there's a lot of venues that look alike, so large format, outdoor, in the sun, wet lead. Right. So that's where we know that our specific tech really adds value to the venue. So you can you can sell this as cost saving across the whole of the US. Different question in terms of their labor market, the much cheaper labor market, and tipping adds complexity. But at the end of the day, we don't sell it on that. We sell this on, are you interested in growing your revenue by at least 30% for every order that goes that you only have to do one touch for? And I think you're even some restaurants, even in the US that you're talking to, are designing around what your data is showing works, dark kitchens, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's happening now, I think, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, we've got this one client who we started with, um, Truckyard Alliance, and we put it in one of their premier venues, and they just opened a new venue. Is it like a trucky road stop or it's not? Yeah, no, it's um, it's a large format outdoor okay, venue, right. but they their theming is all old trucks and stuff, so you can sit on ah, okay, right. the, the tables are made out of old truck beds, so cool, and all the trucks, you know, as you walk in, there's all these trucks vertically nosedived into the earth to create a little tunnel for you. Stages, music, just wonderful venues. Super themed and experienced by the sound of it. Big experience. Yeah, it's Jackson, stuff. baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wee boots. Uh, so, you know, we had real success with them as one of our early clients in the US and then they were opening up another venue. So we worked with them on design in terms of, okay, so how do you make this the way that it's done at this venue? Because when people turn up, humans are funny little things we follow, right? We do. So if, if somebody's wearing long skirts this summer, everyone's going to wear long skirts. And if you go into a venue and everyone's ordering that way, then they will. So we set up with them in terms of how do you establish it, where are you going to put your dark bars, how are you going to split your kitchens? All right, let's design that pizzas go over there and burgers go over there, 
all right, where, where are you going to serve this from? So we worked with them on their on their physical design of the venue and now like 80% of the orders are going through me and you. They're experiencing a huge uplift compared in average ticket size compared to other average check size <laughs> compared to their other venues. I was going to say, yeah, the projections would have been based on what they did without you and me and suddenly if your claims are right that you do boost sales and they'll be very, very happy and beyond what their forecast would be. So interesting. So again, say it again, we've got a lot to cover and I've only got about two and a half minutes left. Very quickly, when you're entering these markets, it's a B2B play. You know, I mean, as much as the end user, the consumer that is driving the volume here, it's actually a B2B marketing play in terms of getting your tech into or getting your product into these venues, right? So B2B versus B2C, you're not so worried about awareness at all amongst patrons, really, because that job is done, I think, in the venue, hopefully. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, this is a B2B2C business, but I think at this point in time, B2B is where our focus is. We're off by hospo people for hospitality uh, business. So we know that we win when we help venues win. Now, customers, when they see the beacon, it's kind of like when they see that little white square, they know what to do and they trust it. So that's important. But, you know, we've got no ego. We don't need to be a name. What we need to be is a really trusted partner. And then, you know, one of the coolest things about hospitality, not only are they just great humans in the industry, they all go and check each other out and they support each other. They, of course, fight like, you know, hell for a customer, but they all go and check each other out. They know what's on each other's menus. They, you know, they... It's a community. So when one leader and leader in their community is doing well and is using this to their advantage and really seeing results, others will follow. So that's why we're very much focused on a B2B play and not being flashy and not being a B2C brand at this point in time. Got it. So if we're talking about a $250 billion addressable market, 1.5% revenue clip for me and you, that would put you at $2.5, $3 billion in revenue at whatever point. There's got to be an IPO coming. <laughs> well, you never know what the future holds. What we're we're doing right now is, you know, going into the UK and the in the UK. It's hard. It's hard, you know, taking Aussie companies overseas. Everyone thinks it's easy, but I've done this before, so um, I know that it's really difficult. So we've got a long way to go. That, but our investors really like our unit economics and where we're going. So we'll be stepping through at that. We're mainly private high net worths and, as you said, the deities of tech and hospitality from Australia are backing us. We've got our first institutional money on. So I think we've got a, a pathway to go. It's fast moving, but I'm old school. So steady, efficient and focused on the unit economics and we'll be just fine and you never know what uh, corporate activity will happen. You never know. I think I do know. It's just about when, that's all. <laughs> that's my hunch. Finally on that one, the founder, Stephen, you talk about how you and he are kind of, when he eventually hired you, he said, you're the boss and you were worried about no, 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 founders, working for founders is always, startups and founders is always a bit risky. You haven't hit that. You actually talk oh, quite- he's amazing. He's a special human and we are the yin and the yang together. But he's also, well, why I joined this startup and why I wanted to work with Stephen was because he's just got no ego and and incredibly self-aware. So he said, no, I want to hire a CEO. And there's a lot of founders who say that, yes. but really all they want to do is be the CEO and then offload the work. Whereas Stephen, he is like, here's all the things I'm good at. 
and here's the things I'm not. I need you to come in. I need a CEO to come in and do all the things I'm not great at and not passionate about. And I'm going to go to the US and open up that market. So we like to say we're doing the afterpay model. You know, so Anthony stayed here and Nick went to the US. So um, the good looking, charm and chatting one went to the US and uh, <laughs> uh, sensible mummers stay behind to make sure that the farm produces. The workhorse, you could say, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but he, working with him is amazing. And mm. there's very few founders um, who have that level of self-awareness and grounding to be able to work and give over their baby full control to someone at the same time as, you know, he's my closest confidant. And that was in, in the conversations before you landed, uh, it was literally, he said, you're the CEO, I report to you. It was literally like that. And he's delivering on that. That's the difference, I guess. Absolutely. He, I have a specific one-on-one form that I use from my McKinsey days mm. on how to drive effective one-on-ones. He turns up with it each week. There you go. I mean, you know, there's no ego in that, is there? Certainly not. And well, that's impressive. So um, listen, we got to get to Kentucky really quickly because <laughs> it's a really great case study. I know it's well documented, but I suspect my listeners won't know the inside of what happened when you got to that business, right? You, you came from, where'd you come from before that? Anyway, you landed at Kentucky and you went, holy shit, we have some work to do. What was that work? What was the problem that was confronting the business? Um, what an epic 70-year-old brand that needed to evolve and become cool and relevant to Gen Y and Gen Z. That was the problem task. Even though that was its customer base, it was its existing customer base anyway. It was the youngies that were doing it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Kitiki previous to now, I mean, it's doing very, very well now. You know, it's it's back of a, it's a customer base of baby boomers and Gen X, my generation. And, you know, there is no greater difference between Gen X and Gen Y across any of the generations. Gen Y and Gen Z have similarities, but they are vastly different to baby boomers and Gen Y. And that is where Kentucky had built its business. So, and the brand, iconic, same awareness as, as Google or Apple in the Australian, New Zealand and South African markets, but it had failed to evolve and stay cool and stay relevant to a new generation being Generation Y. And so what were the things that you flipped? How did you change the product? Uh, first thing is the product had to evolve. And so I had to really work with my peers on that because coming in, I was sort of really only responsible for Australia and Asia. And, you know, the majority of our product is operated in Europe and um, the US. So I controlled, we were able to change Asia really quickly because I owned the operations for that. But we really had to work with my peers to change the product overseas to become more relevant. So customers weren't interested in going to the, you know, Eiffel Tower, going up the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Boring. You know, they wanted to go to the left bank because Gossip Girl spent the summer on the left bank and, you know, of the Seine in, in Paris. Right. My boss at Kentucky, he started in 1976, the year I was born. And he said, we just used to take them to a camp yard and feed them, you know, chicken and chips. And then we'd go to an Irish bar, you know, in Paris. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, now we're going to be doing three course degustations with escargot and a, a cheap but champagne tasting. And then we're going to go to Montmartre to all the cool bars there. And we're going to go to the Moulin Rouge because that's really cool again. <laughs> so, um, you know, we really had to evolve the product. Mm. So the fact that was the first piece, then evolve your positioning and your brand. And, you know, you can't, being right isn't persuasive. 
you can't push something on, you know, generation Y and Z. You have to draw them in. So to change our positioning, obviously we did all the standard marketing stuff in terms of overhaul of brand look and feel, et cetera. But what we started really doing was partnering with organizations that were cooler than us and, and really focusing our marketing on content marketing. So being an authority in the space of what it meant to be a young person seeing the world and traveling and all the things that young people care about today. So sustainability, cultural, genuine cultural interaction, not cultural appropriation, getting lost in the back streets, hitting unique experiences with locals rather than seeing iconic landmarks. So we had to become an authority on traveling like that. And we did that through content marketing. And after that, people came familiar with the brand. I was like, oh, okay, that, that sounds really cool that I can have genuine culturally immersive experiences and also opportunity to get involved in a community project or a sustainability project in the Mekong Delta. That sounds really cool. I want to do that on my holiday. So change the product, change the positioning, do all the aesthetic stuff around look and feel, and then change how you become relevant through content marketing. Interesting. And so when you swapped out the obvious, you talk about the Eiffel Tower, I might've talked about some other things, which is, you know, um, that happened too, by the way, just, and I'm sure you knew that, but you can't go there, but swapping out those obvious things for the culturally, you know, relevant and engaging did it swap the type of profile of customer that Kentucky got? And did you lose those that were just really there for the party, party, party and not the cultural, you know, and all the rest? Yeah, we did move away, I think, from people who just came to party and that's probably what my generation did. You know, they'd see Europe from the bottom of a beer glass. Mm. But we broadened our appeal. You know, when you've got food-only tours and you've got you know, slow backstreet, never hit a big city tours, you do broaden the appeal. The Kentucky customer fundamentally remained the same though. Upper middle, mass market, who, you know, may be their first or um, second time overseas. But if we had failed to evolve to what that generation was interested in, we weren't going to continue to capture the exact same customer. It's just the customer had changed. Mm. You know, a 23-year-old today is very different to a 23-year-old 25 years ago. And so um, it's still the 23-year-old. You know, average age is sort of 23. You know, it gets up to like 29 when you go to um, our Indian and, you know, subcontinent India and Latin American products. But we had just had to appeal to the new 23-year-old. I'm running out of time. I said that 100 years ago. Um, What happened to the business? What happened to Kentucky as a result of the the restructure or the repositioning? Yeah, incredible. So, one, we became relevant and we became a bit of a force again uh, within youth travel. Uh, I think the big thing I'm probably proud of of the the team the most is we went from a 28% consideration, that means 28% of people would consider going on a Kentucky within our targeted age group, to 68%. Over what time frame? What, what was the phase here we're talking? I think that took us about four years. So from 2000 and to what, what year? Yeah, 2000, when did I say that? 2014 to 2018. Yeah. Um, yeah, we went from 28% considering. Everyone knew us. We had 99% awareness, mm. but no one wanted to travel on us. So mm. jumping from 28 to 68, that's um, pretty good going in terms of who you want to capture in your target market. And that flew on to sales, business increased? Yeah, absolutely. And more importantly, driving our direct sales as well. So enabling a more effective and cost-effective 
their distribution channel. Ah, that's right, because you started a yeah. – Yes, you expanded beyond the agents, didn't yes. you? That's right. That was that DTC model, yeah. yes. Can you give us a, a range on what the business increased by? Look, we increased our um, direct consumer business by 50%, if that, that gives you any indication. Okay. And What was the revenue on that? Well, the Travel Corporation is one of the most sophisticated travel, who owns Kentucky, is one of the most sophisticated travel operators globally. And let's just say they have a very healthy um, margin because over time they've bought a lot of their properties that have a different cost structure. Okay, yeah. right. Excellent. Well, look, that's another conversation. Yeah. Can I wrap up with a promise the final <laughs> question? Is um, finally, 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 lessons, like you've had a you know quite a stellar career, lessons from working at McKinsey, for working for Branson at Virgin, and why you don't ever want to go into a traditional corporate gig again? What's wrong with them? <laughs> Look, um, and I guess this is lessons from all three of my kind of main environments that I work, McKinsey, Virgin, and Kentucky is I fundamentally believe that work is a social occasion where I get to build businesses and build people. So, uh, and solve big problems. Uh, so I find traditional corporate a bit slow moving. I really hate hierarchies. I'm into meritocracies and I, I move fast and I found big corporates move so slowly. They move at a glacial pace and it's hard to get impact. <laughs> they do, but they keep, they stay alive. They still exist. The slowness doesn't seem to, you know, this is the bit where I go, I, I hear you 100%. But those big beasts still carry on. Yes. So, so does Kentucky. Seventy years old. Mm, so does Virgin. Good point. That's like about fifty years old. Okay. Yeah. Nothing against them. Just not me. I, you know, have a high level of self awareness, and my core values around change, transformation, and making that fun. So, and having really fun problems, sticky problems to solve. You, you know, you don't put me in a BAU role, you put me in a role that where there's transformational growth. So, lessons from each of them. So, McKinsey, what an incredible experience and what amazing people. You know, the key things I got out of that was how to really break down a problem and how to really understand business drivers. And working 18-hour days. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't care when you're in your 20s. It was amazing. Uh, Virgin, that was probably the first place I really felt at home that, you know, Virgin, we take business really seriously, just not ourselves. Um, and everyone thinks that it's a screw it, let's do it. Like, you know, like that's it's run by a bunch of cowboys. It's not. It's run by a bunch of Goldman Sachs bankers and McKinsey consultants behind the scenes. Yes, right. But we're given permission, you know, like when I was 30, um, myself and a colleague got given $30 million to go start Virgin Active here in Australia. Mm. You know, that's a great opportunity. Whereas in a big corporate, well, you'd give that to the trusted pair of hands who'd been there forever yeah, yeah, and yeah. who had worked in, you know, who had you know, credibility and experience for this. I'd never run a gym before. What did I know? But, you know, Virgin believes it's a pure meritocracy, um, like the McKinsey environment, and they're prepared to back you. So, and that was just a hell of a lot of fun. And with Kentucky, again, people, thought it wasn't a serious business, but I ended up, when I left Travel Corporation, I was running a $300 million revenue line of which most businesses would be, would die for my uh, uh, net profit margin. Mm. Yeah. And I would love to ask that, but I know you're not going to tell me. No, private company. Final one is the top <laughs> characteristic that you look for in, in people. Passion. I can, yeah, just passion, energy. Right. Uh, and DNA. I hire for DNA. And what I mean by that is, are you smart? Can you figure it out? And have you got a little fire in your belly so you want to have a go? Because anyone can learn anything, but have you got a fire in your belly? Okay, so what percentage of people tick those boxes? 
Very few. Yeah. Okay, good. I feel better now. Right. Very few. Yeah. But, you know, everything's uh, about the bell curve, right? And what you're just trying to do is constantly shift your bell curve slightly to the right. So I really value diversity though. So, you know, really, I don't care if you're an introvert or an extrovert or stuff. I just like, you know, are you a thinker? Are you smart? Do you want to have a crack? There's so much more to ask, but you've got to go to a meeting and I should go and do some work myself. So Katrina <laughs> Barry, fantastic conversation. I think we have to loop around a whole bunch of other things, but I'll leave you alone for a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining and um, go the big empire. Yeah, great. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for your support, mate. Talk soon. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.